The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In early 1862, Lew Wallace was a rising star in the Union Army, the youngest major general, commander of a division in U.S. Grant's Army. When he died in 1905, he would be famous as the author of Ben-Hur. In between, however, his life fell at times under a cloud because of the events of April 6, 1862, the first day of the Battle of Shiloh. Grant had sent for Wallace's division, camped a few miles away, but Wallace didn't arrive until nightfall. He would spend a lifetime explaining why. We'll spend the next hour finding out with Gail Stevens, author of Shadow of Shiloh, Major General Lew Wallace in the Civil War. That's today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building in Greenville, North Carolina, on the campus of East Carolina University. But as always, speaking just for myself and for Civil War Talk Radio, of which I am the sole employee, and not for the university or the UNC system or the state of North Carolina. And likewise, our guest will represent her views and no one else's today, as always. Well, it is good to be back here after uh, missing last week's show, for which uh, there was a technical uh, bureaucratic uh, foul up at this end, and since I've just admitted that I'm the sole employee of Civil War Talk Radio, it was my fault. can't blame it on any uh, underlings or peons or minions or anyone else, uh, but we got things straightened out, and last week's scheduled guest, Brian Dirk, will join us uh, around Lincoln's birthday in 2013, an appropriate time to talk about Abraham Lincoln. We'll have... Uh, Shows coming up in the near future. Bobby Horton, Bobby Horton, Civil War musician, will join us next week, uh, November 16. Then, after a week off for Thanksgiving, Ellen Gruber Garvey will join us to talk about her 
book on 19th century scrapbooking, uh, the collecting of articles by private citizens during the Civil War as a form of memory and communication. should be uh, different from our usual fare. We'll see how it goes. And on December 7th, John Jakes, the legendary historical fiction writer, will be with us, author of North and South. So all kinds of good things coming up. Uh, the following week, we'll have commencement here at ECU, and then we'll take the winter hiatus and uh, gird our loins for the spring season starting in January. Uh, since the last show, uh, I had the uh, pleasure of traveling up to Providence, Rhode Island, uh, happily untouched by the recent uh, hurricane and storm that followed. Uh, I hope all Civil War talk radio listeners were equally unscathed or, uh, if not, hopefully are all well on the way to recovery. Uh, there was fortunately no damage uh, to speak of here in Greenville, North Carolina, uh, some at the coast, uh, but I hope everybody is doing well from that. The folks in Providence were fine, and it was a pleasure to speak to the Civil War Roundtable meeting there in a fabulous uh, setting, no other word uh, to describe it, a early 20th century armory built for a local militia unit that has acquired a collection of memorabilia of photographs and uniforms and weapons from the two world wars and then earlier some back to the civil war and the revolutionary period uh, covering every square inch of the walls of the interior of the lower level of the building uh, posters and documents and uh, models and just all kinds of things representing the area's military past. It was really a fascinating place uh, to visit and a a pleasure to talk uh, with uh, the, the members of the roundtable there in Providence, Rhode Island. So uh, uh, deep thanks to Mark Dunkelman, who has been on the show several times and was courteous enough to extend that invitation. It was really something. If you're ever in the area and get a chance to go to the annual uh, banquet of the uh, that, that group, I, I strongly urge you to do so. Uh, it's quite a place. It was also interesting talking to uh, some, some of the uh, people in attendance who have listened to Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, another listener, uh, I spoke to this week, we had the same experience where we were talking about uh, historical matters, and what people have told me is that when speaking to me for the first time in person uh, or individually by phone, that they keep waiting for a pause in our conversation to be followed by a commercial urging you to be the best you can be at whatever it is you are doing uh, or some other uh, self-help show as advertised here on World Talk Radio. And those commercials don't follow me around in real life. They do not interrupt my lectures here at East Carolina University. They're just part of the show, but I guess that uh, you get used to hearing them and you start to think that's just how this guy is. So it was fun to talk to people without the commercials, but we appreciate the the announcements here, as always, uh, because they make it possible for World Talk Radio to keep the show going. One other thing that keeps the show going, as most of you already know, is www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney presents the uh, 
links to the recent shows, uh, all the shows going all the way back actually to 2004, as well as information about upcoming shows, and where he offers you the opportunity to send your money to Civil War Talk Radio uh, through the miracle of PayPal at civilwartr at aol.com. And it's a way for me to thank you by sending a book if you do choose to donate. It's not tax deductible. Money can be spent on anything that I wish. Uh, I could buy some political commercials if uh, American listeners are having any withdrawal. Uh, If you lived in a battleground state here in November 2012, you were inundated with political messages until last Tuesday. Uh, So if you missed that, you know, I could perhaps use the Civil War Talk Radio Fund to put an ad on the air for some cause or other. But I won't do that. I will use it to buy books uh, like this week's book, which is a uh, a lovely uh, large format production of the the Indiana Historical Society, uh, the press of the Indiana Historical Society. And that gives us a good reason to move forward and talk about the book. The uh, title, Shadow of Shiloh, Major General Lew Wallace in the Civil War, uh, is written by Gail Stevens. Uh, Ms. Stevens, are you there? I certainly am. Well, thank you for uh, joining us today on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, it's great to be here, although it's a little hard to be inside on such a glorious day. I was at Monocacy Battlefield this morning, and this is that wonderful time of year when the leaves are gone and the sun is out and you can see everything. Uh, well, it is a magnificent time of year, and we definitely have to talk about the Monocacy Battlefield where Lou Wallace uh, enjoyed his finest hour, and we'll certainly get to that today. Uh, but let me start with, with you. Uh, if you and I haven't met, is it okay if we go by first names? Can I call you Gail? Oh, you certainly can. And please call me Jerry. The uh, uh, I, you, you were recommended by some other listeners, and, and all listeners are always welcome to send suggestions for uh, uh, guests for the show, uh, anybody you think be would be worth hearing. Where I'm always happy to to have suggestions, uh, and uh, so so I looked looked you up through the miracle of the internet and discovered you have done some uh, that before writing this book you had a, a separate career uh, with the government. Is that correct? That is that's correct. Yes, I did. Uh, so so. What was your day job, or did that connect with Civil War studies? Uh, Tell us a little bit about your your background. It did, um, in a very different way. I spent 26 years in the National Security Agency working in intelligence. And what I found when I got into history was that the job of an intelligence analyst and the job of a historian are very much the same. In both cases, you take pieces of information, pull them together, and try to figure out what that information is saying, if you can. So I was amazed when I started to do historical research and write at how naturally I flowed into it from my life as an intelligence analyst. Well, this this is promising. I'm thinking now for my next career, I could perhaps transition the other way and... and, and... (laughs) Yes, what fun and that become would be. an intelligence analyst. Absolutely, the two work very well together. Can you tell us anything about what you did? Is this the kind of thing if you told me you would have to kill me afterward? Oh, or, no, absolutely uh, not. An analyst's job is an analyst's job. It's um, 
It's really to find out what's going on in the world um, by using, you know, available open sources of information and secret sources of information and pulling the two together and telling the policymaker, here's what we think's happening. And sometimes we're right and sometimes, sadly, we're not. But it's the same thing with history. Sometimes you head down a road and you believe you're right, and then you find some more information and you realize you're just not quite right. Well, that's one of the strengths of the historian. I'm always trying to get this across to my students, that that you have to be led by the evidence. And if your theory isn't being corroborated, then you change your theory. You don't change the evidence or discard pieces of it. Uh, You have to adapt. Now, uh, if you were to have written a book then on, say, Pinkerton and and the evidence collection of the Civil War, there would be no need for a next question. But instead, uh, we've got General Lew Wallace. What uh, brought you to that topic? Well, that was actually monocacy. Um, After I retired from the National Security Agency, and was I was always interested in history, and I discovered this fabulous little relatively unknown battle and battlefield, began to, um, I volunteered there one day a week, have for years, and I had never, I knew nothing about Lou Wallace, except I did know he wrote Ben-Hur. And at Monocacy, Wallace is, is an unalloyed Union hero. He pulled together a force, um, sort of almost out of thin air. He His force was much smaller than the Confederate force. Half his force was were green troops. And he did not win the battle, but by actually standing for a full day, he won strategically. He delayed early long enough so that Early didn't seize Washington. And here, I thought, here's, oh, he's a hero. And then I started to read more about him and ran smack into the Shiloh story where he is definitely not portrayed as a hero. And people would say to me, well, he got lost, or he wandered around, or he wasn't interested in fighting, none of which squared with what I had learned at Monocacy. And I thought, no, this is strange. I want to look into this some more. I want to find out more about this man and how this happened. And the result is my book. That's really an ideal way, isn't it, to to get into a historical question, to have uh, have these kinds of things approached. It it, it strikes me, interestingly, uh, in, in the world of Abraham Lincoln that I spend a lot of time looking at, two of the most interesting books of the last half of the 20th century were written by people who came at Lincoln backwards, that instead of reading biographies and then eventually reading his writings, they both read his collected works before they knew a whole lot about him otherwise. And one was uh, Gabor Borat, who wrote the uh, Abraham Lincoln and the Economics of the American Dream from the point of view of a Hungarian immigrant uh, who then comes to America. And then uh, Lerone Bennett, who wrote Forced into Glory, which is uh, a much different take on Lincoln, but from an African-American uh, with a different perspective. But they both started with a 
the, the back end and then worked forward to the reputation, said, how does he have this reputation? It doesn't square with what I read, and wrote really creative, interesting books. And you've done the same here with, uh, with Wallace, starting with his lesser-known heroism, and then go back to the well-known story. Then the question is, well, how'd that get there? Yeah. Uh, what, what a great way to, to do this. Well, let's start with, with Wallace's early life. What, uh, uh, it, it looks to, from, from your book, I, I think it's safe to say the Mexican War was a, a, a shaping experience for him. Yes, the Mexican mm-hmm. War and also his youth, if I may say. His mother sure. died when he was six. His father, who was uh, an Indiana politician, governor of Indiana for a term, um, more or less left the kids, if you will, with um, not even relatives, with local people. And Wallace was allowed to run free. He became kind of wild. And he had... He had to overcome that through sheer hard work. And one of the great, that, that reputation that he acquired, that is one of the great strengths of Wallace. Wallace was able to work, to focus, to concentrate, to get things done. He was also very smart. Um, but he hated school, for example. But he was able to concentrate on books outside of school and more or less educate himself. Um, he, his father was a graduate of West Point, um, 1821. And his father's uniform and the whole, his father was a militia commander during the Black Hawk War. And Wallace was absolutely enthralled with the uniform. He's a very small boy then. He was born in 1827. And he was enthralled with the whole military, very small military ceremony is saw. His father in uniform, all these men marching off to war, and it, imp- it imprinted itself upon the mind of this very smart, rather wild kid. So when the Mexican War started, he saw his chance to get in a uniform and go to war. And, of course, he did, and the experience was a very bad one. Um, they were a volunteer regiment. They were always kept in the rear. He was with Zachary Taylor's army. They were always kept in the rear in some of the worst places. They spent months at the mouth of the Rio Grande River, camped on the sand dunes. Um, and by the time they finally got to Monterey, um, the war was, Buena Vista was over, and there was nothing to do but be a garrison regiment. And Wallace was very bitter about Taylor. He was very bitter about Taylor's treatment of the Indiana regiments at Buena Vista um, because Taylor basically said they were cowardly and ran. And if you look into that story, it's not quite true. But Taylor wouldn't walk back from it. So Wallace had this military experience he he still loved the military, but it was a terrible experience, and it was at the hands of Zachary Taylor, a regular, and he really never forgot that. Wallace had this attitude about regulars and West Pointers, although Taylor wasn't a West Pointer, I don't believe. Did did he ever consider going to West Point himself? No, and I think had Wallace been a less wild child, if I can use that word, his father would have seen that he got into West Point because his father was a powerful politician. 
But Wallace was just too wild. And he would have been, <laughs> I, based on what I know about him, he probably would have been kicked out within a year. Not because he couldn't handle the curriculum, but demerits for conduct. Well, he he was quite a character. There's a, a photograph, uh, or an illustration, I should say, of, of him as a young man, and he's very smooth-featured. If uh, I, I can't put myself in the position of uh, my teenage younger daughter, but I imagine he would have the, the kind of effect that Twilight uh, uh, actors have on teenage girls today. He, he looks like he's attractive and he knows it and and uh yes the impression one gets let's take a short break and come back and talk about this this, this wild attractive young man and and what he does when the civil war breaks out we'll do that in just a moment uh here on civil war talk radio we're talking with gail stevens author of shadow of shiloh i'm jerry prokopovich and we'll be right back have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person think about that for a second almost everyone wants to be better but how does one go about doing that One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Gail Stevens, the author of Shadow of Shiloh, Major General Lew Wallace in the Civil War. We talked a little bit about the youth and Mexican War experiences of Lew Wallace and uh, some of the character traits that would cause him uh, to, to uh, well, we'll find out what he did uh, at Shiloh, then later at the Battle of Monocacy in 1864. But listeners, as we uh, get ready to talk about Shiloh in some detail here, you can, if you're listening, uh, download it. You can pause at this point and go get uh, a copy of this book if you have one and open it to the map of Shiloh. If not, you've got other maps of Shiloh in the house or you wouldn't be listening to the show. So go ahead and, and get one off the shelf so you can follow along since we are on a non-visual medium here. 
if you're listening live, you'll just have to recreate in your mind that picture of the Tennessee River and Snake Creek, Owl Creek. Uh, well, you know where they are. Oh, okay, back to, uh, uh, as we were discussing, uh, Gail, the, the character of, of Wallace made him perhaps not the ideal uh, person to go to West Point. He never did so, but he he loved the military. Uh, so he must have volunteered immediately when the Civil War broke out. Well, actually, uh, the governor of Indiana called him up immediately and made him the state's first adjutant general. Wallace buckled down after he got back from the war, realizing that he had to earn a living. So he became a lawyer, studied law with his father, and then he met um, his future wife. And his need to impress her father made him buckle down even harder. They were finally married in 1852, and Wallace actually became quite a prominent Hoosier, um, what Indianans call themselves. He was, uh, he went, he was a prominent Democrat, was in the state Senate, and he formed um, a military, a militia, a volunteer militia called the Montgomery Guards, which actually became quite famous in the Middle West, where you'd have these encampments and these militia units would um, drill against each other and win prizes. And Wallace's unit was a very good one. So when the war broke out, he was the man the governor of Indiana thought of first for adjutant general to raise Indiana's first quota in um, uh, for under Lincoln's call, which was six regiments. Wallace agreed to do it, but he said, I do want to be commander of one of these units, and he was given command of the 11th Indiana Volunteers. Did he His see regiment, action? And he was associated with that regiment. At the end of the war, they still called themselves Lou Wallace's Zouaz. Uh, as regimental commander, did he see any action? Yes, actually, um, they were sent to guard the line of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, which runs right along the Maryland-Virginia border and down into Virginia. But it was crucial for the Union to hold that railroad for east-west transportation. And Wallace was sent to Cumberland, Maryland, to guard it. And while on the way to Cumberland, he found out there was a Confederate camp at Romney, which was close to the B&O, well within a position to threaten his control of his part of the railroad. So Wallace um, got his regiment off the train, marched over the mountains overnight, attacked the encampment at Romney, routed the Confederates, and marched back to Cumberland. And that plus another small-scale action while he was there, um, they were pretty big deals in June of 1861, when nothing much else was happening. And so Wallace and the 11th actually became quite famous. And they went back to um, Indiana. It was a three-month regiment at that point. Wallace re-recruited it as a three-year regiment, and they were sent to Paducah, Kentucky in September, and Wallace was made a brigadier general. Basically, for two reasons, the actions in Maryland or in Northern Virginia and the action and his being one of the most prominent officers from Indiana, which was wholeheartedly supporting the Union at that point. So he rises uh, very quickly. He very goes quickly. from regimental 
command as a brigadier general. Now, does he get a brigade or even a division? He got a brigade in Paducah. Um, Paducah at that point was under the command of Charles Ferguson Smith, Brigadier General, West Pointer. Um, one of the beau ideals of several prominent officers, Henry Halleck and U.S. Grant, both greatly admired Smith, but of course Smith died uh, right after the Battle of Shiloh of a basically of, of a cut he'd suffered while getting into a rowboat. He just um, so Wallace had a brigade. Smith took care of Wallace. Smith more or less trained Wallace in being in, an officer uh, at brigade command, a general officer. Spent a lot of time with Wallace, and it's really, in a way, too bad that Smith died. Yeah, Smith is one of those forgotten figures of the war that, that uh, as you say, Grant and others greatly admired him. He, he might have uh, made much more of himself. But uh, Wallace then, instead of being under Smith, he ends up under Grant yes. and uh, participates in the fighting at Fort Donelson. How did that work out for uh, for Wallace? Ah, uh, Donelson was... Donelson made Wallace, and Donelson, in a sense, because Wallace was so successful there and had been so successful, Wallace had a tendency to arrogance, and Donelson fed that tendency... Um, after Henry had fallen and Grant moved overland with his army across that narrow neck of land there to seize Donaldson, Halleck, in overall command of the department, Grant's commander began funneling massive numbers of new regiments to Grant. So Grant gave Wallace a new division. Uh, and put him in the center of his line at Donaldson. Now this is on the 14th of February. Wallace's division is basically a green division. He's a green commander. But on the 15th of February, when the Confederates attacked um, and began to push John McClernand back, the Confederates attacked McClernand, who was on the right, huge flank attack there, if you will, and pushed McClernand back. Wallace moved forward with his division and put himself in a line on a ridge, with artillery uh, in front and stopped the Confederate drive. And then that afternoon, you know, Grant makes that famous ride up the lines and, and says, you know, they're, they, they meant to leave, we're going to keep them in there, sends Smith on the attack, while Wallace, he sent Wallace on the attack on the Union right. And Wallace pushed the Confederates back into the outer works. So Wallace had cleared the Confederates off the road they needed to get out of, to evacuate the fort to Nashville. Now Wallace's part in that battle is largely forgotten. It's somewhat frustrating to me because um, Wallace is quite a hero there. Um, but because Grant, not unsurprisingly, because Grant very much admired Smith, Grant concentrated on what Smith had done, praised Smith, Wallace's role is forgotten, but it very much made Wallace, and it made Wallace a major general, because everyone associated, every officer was promoted to major general. And Wallace, middle of March 1862, he hasn't even been in the military for a year, finds himself a major general. He was um, only... In one of the most successful armies in, in the war, and it kind of went to his head. 
Well, that that really that brings us to to Shiloh because now you've got this young man. He's in his mid thirties. He's uh, suddenly a major general, and at Fort Donelson, he had moved his division. Uh, promptly and successfully during the battle without waiting for orders. He simply responded to the situation. So he, we've got a recipe for trouble in a way. Here's someone who succeeds without waiting for orders, who doesn't like yeah. regulars in their orderly ways, who thinks he knows everything. Uh, let me just set the, the stage quickly. Uh, since our listeners all have their Shiloh maps out now, they see Pittsburgh Landing and Grant's army under attack on April 6, 1862. They look a few miles north up to Crump's Landing, and there is Wallace with his division. And it couldn't be simpler. Grant sends word, uh, bring your division down, and there's a road going straight from Crump's Landing and Pittsburgh Landing right along the Tennessee River called the River Road. Uh, but that's not the road that Wallace uses, and it takes him a lot longer to get there. Uh, what happened? What happened? Uh, there's the great, uh, the great story. We we have time, thank heavens. Um, well, <laughs> first of all, I guess the first thing is that Wallace arrived at Crump's Landing, and within a day, he realized he had to be able to communicate with Pittsburgh Landing. Now, one of the things that I noted in all the reading that all the readings I made about everybody was the Union Army was uniformly confident that they would go out and attack the Confederates, and they were not expecting a Confederate attack. So a lot of this is due to a sort of a forward motion, um, confident attitude on the part of the Union Army and a lack of professionalism at this point. It's a very amateur army, including Grant. Now, Wallace sent his cavalry commander out um, to evaluate the roads. And this is, there had been huge flooding. It's springtime. There was huge flooding on the Tennessee River. What the cavalry commander came back and told Wallace was that the road that Wallace took that day, the road that seems to be so much further away, the Shunpike is what it was called, high and dry, and that the crossings over the major creeks in the area would be easy. The river road was underwater. Um, the bridge over Snake Creek, which is a huge creek, um, I've spent a lot of time down at Shiloh, was out. The Confederates had taken it out. So Wallace chose the Shunpike to join the Union Army, and the Shunpike led to the right of the Union Army, led, in other words, to William T. Sherman's camps. Um, it also led to a very good road to Corinth, so, again, thinking offensively here. Now, Wallace's huge mistake really was not in picking this road, but in not telling U.S. Grant that he had chosen to use that road and that he had, had improved it. So, Grant didn't know. Now, the flip side of that coin is that Grant and his staff moved from Savannah to Pittsburgh Landing and with stops at Crump's Landing on a steamboat. Grant and his staff never got out and rode those roads. They were not familiar with the terrain between Crump's Landing and Pittsburgh Landing. 
So when you find the grant staff is reporting on the 6th of April, 7th of April, and later that Wallace is lost, a lot of it is because they were lost, I found, in reading the documents. They didn't know where they were. So when when Wallace gets the order sometime between 11 o'clock and and noon on, on April 6th to bring the division down, he immediately puts it in action and sends it along a road that he has that he's planned yeah. for this action. The, yeah. He's got a road in mind. He knows where it goes. He knows it'll get to the right flank of the Union Army, where Sherman's division is, and that it. And he's even prepared it. He's even improved the road and got the bridges ready. And and so there's nothing unprofessional or, or amateur about this. He's ready to make his move. Exactly. So the next question then is why doesn't he just show up a couple hours later on the right flank of Sherman's division all ready to go? Well, of course, Wallace, first of all, there's controversy over the order that Grant sent. Um, and I will say this, Grant did not write his own order. And if you look at the end of his chapter on Shiloh, he wrote a note uh, in his uh, memoirs. He wrote a note in which he said, I don't know what order Wallace got. So Wallace got an order to move. Now, Wallace always insisted he was simply ordered to the right of the Union Army. So using the Shunpike made perfect sense. Uh, In the middle of the controversy, Grant would say, I ordered him to Pittsburgh Landing. But Grant walked back from that because he hadn't written his own order, and he realized he really didn't know what he had ordered Wallace to do. So Wallace started down that road, and Grant at Shiloh, sent out a staffer. Grant expected Wallace much faster than Wallace possibly could have made it, even had he taken the river road. The staffer finally found Wallace about 2.30, and Wallace was about two-thirds of the way to Sherman. And the staffer said, no, he wants you at Pittsburgh Landing. He wants you there like hell. It's a matter of whether we'll be driven into the Tennessee River. So Wallace had a decision to make, and he decided to turn around and go back. Because of uh, the staffer was Captain William Rowley, because of Rowley's insistence that Grant wanted him and needed him at Pittsburgh Landing. So Wallace made this march. Now, I've walked the route of that entire march with a group of historians from Shiloh, including Stacy Allen. And that march is, Wallace and his men marched 16 miles that day. Um, It was a long, tough march, made worse by the fact that the river road was, in many places, still underwater. So it was a long, tough march, and they didn't get there until the end of the day. Now, another interesting thing about this is, immediately after the battle, Grant praised Wallace. Um, You did fine. You know, he wrote it in his report. You can read it in his first report. What happened the huge casualties at Shiloh, which no one in the North was expecting, turned a Union victory into a real mess for U.S. Grant. He was in serious trouble. And Grant's staff told Grant that Wallace had been at fault, that he had gotten there late, that he had, because some of them had joined him late on the march, that Wallace had uh, been uh, slow, um, taken too much time, and Grant believed them. So Grant then sent the report to Halleck with a note on it that said, I ordered him to Pittsburgh Landing. 
and I do not agree with this um, report in some other particulars, walking back on his first judgment of Wallace. This was in April, later on in April 1862, and that was really the beginning of the controversy. We're going to stop here and take a short break in the controversy and come out and find, come back and find more about what happened between Wallace and Grant and, and the missing hours at Shiloh. But we'll have to take a short break. First, we're talking today with Gail Stevens, author of Shadow of Shiloh, Major General Lew Wallace in the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. best-selling authors, find tantalizing new books, learn the latest healthy living tips, and be inspired to coach yourself to success on Star Style. Be the star you are every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific Time on World Talk Radio. The Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan, and her health hero daughter, Heather Brittany, fire up the airwaves with upbeat, positive, life-changing talk radio. It's the Power Hour on Star Style. Be the star you are. Thursdays from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Come play with us. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Gail Stevens. She is the author of Shadow of Shiloh, Major General Lew Wallace in the Civil War. It's a very uh, handsome, large uh, format, uh, coffee table size book produced by the Indiana Historical Society with nice illustrations and excellent maps that help clarify uh, some of the mysteries of Wallace's career, in particular the one we've been discussing. Where was he on April 6, 1862, when his division was needed with Grant's army at Pittsburgh Landing, and he was based at Crump's Landing a few miles away. As we learned in the last uh, section, it was there was that direct river road from point A to point B, but it was not a good road. It was underwater, and Wallace had carefully planned in advance to take another route that would get him to the right flank of the Union Army. But, uh, again, as we learned that he started out on that road, he knew where he was going, never lost, never uh, confused. But had he stayed on that road instead of showing up on the right flank of Sherman's camp, Sherman had been driven back several miles toward the river, he would have ended up, Wallace would have ended up by himself in the middle of the Confederate Army, and that would not have gone well. So he doubles back 
bushwhacks cross country to get to the river road and, and gets there in time to fight the next day. Uh, Gail, let me jump ahead and just uh, our, our, tell our listeners some of the, the fascinating things in in Wallace's life. He has so many experiences. He's almost like a sort of Forrest Gump of the Civil War. Uh, he, he ends up serving in... Uh, uh, well, let's see, he, he serves on the commission that looks into Buell's actions in 1862. He defends Cincinnati almost single-handed against uh, Edmund Kirby Smith and uh, uh, ends up uh, commanding Camp Chase, the parole camp. Uh, even, today, I find students are just flabbergasted at the story of parole camps of Union soldiers guarding other Union soldiers on behalf of the Confederacy during the middle of the war. And the uh, and all this time it's because he's no longer in command after Shiloh. He, he's, he goes back to Indiana and wants to get back to the war. These are all interesting things, but he wants to get back to the war. Why can't he get a command after Shiloh? Um, well, essentially because of Henry Halleck. The real, the real, um, the person who held Lou Wallace's career in hold for so long was Henry Halleck. Henry Halleck hated the idea of politicians in command, as he called them, and almost from the beginning he set out to get rid of these men. Now, Wallace had, Wallace I always tell people, and it always surprises them, Wallace left the Army of the Tennessee at the end of June 1862 completely willingly. He asked for leave. He left. He never returned in spite of several orders to return. Grant had kept his division for him, would have given him division command back, but Wallace didn't want to go back because he didn't want to fight for Grant anymore because he believed Grant didn't appreciate him. So when Wallace turned it down the third time, um, Halleck put him in command of the Buell, made him president of the Buell Commission, which went on for five months to Wallace's great frustration. And when he finally finished, it's the old Andy Warhol thing. His ten seconds of fame were finished. Halleck felt very comfortable in sending him home, and Wallace stayed home until March of 1864 when he was given command of the middle department by Abraham Lincoln because Wallace's political friends had reached out and finally captured Lincoln's attention. Now, Halleck was very much opposed, said it was little better than murder to appoint a man like Lew Wallace to important command, but Lincoln didn't listen to him, which I think was a very good thing. Well, it's not, the other thing you could say is it's not that important to command because it, it's Maryland and Delaware, and the fighting is all in Virginia. Uh, so even Halleck must be comfort, comforted to know that, that uh, Wallace is not going to see any action commanding troops uh, in the rear areas of Maryland. Right. Nobody ever expected Lee, um, because make no mistake about it, this campaign... Jubal Early's advance north was Robert E. Lee's idea. Uh, nobody ever expected that to happen. Lincoln sent Wallace to Maryland to ensure that Maryland emancipated the slaves in a constitutional process. He knew Wallace had a good political touch, and Wallace oversaw that. 
but it was it was the military, the surprise invasion, um, Early's invasion of the North, which which Halleck and Grant just didn't believe in until Jubal Early was across the Potomac that gave Lew Wallace his chance to show his stuff. And this is uh, July of 1864 we're talking about. So yes. Grant's army is down around Richmond, and uh, the, the fighting is is over as far as... Uh, uh, as far as offensive moves by the Confederacy, uh, at least that's the view from the North. Right. So, uh, but but Early brings an army up, and there's Wallace, and he's really the only organized force between Early and Washington D.C. Absolutely. And what his, happens at Monocacy? Um, what happened at Monocacy is that Wallace was able to pull together this force that he actually, courtesy of Grant who had decided to send a division of veterans, the 3rd Division of the 6th Corps, up to defend Harper's Ferry, which had fallen to early days before. But the Union was playing catch-up the entire time for this campaign. Catch-up, because their intelligence, if I can go back to that word, was just terrible. Um, So Grant had sent this division, and Wallace pulled the division or pulled the commander off the trains and said um, that had been sent from Baltimore where they landed and said to General Ricketts, Brigadier General James Ricketts, well, you can go to Harper's Ferry, but Jubal Early's already there. And Ricketts agreed to stay and fight. So Wallace had this 6,500-man small army, only six guns, um, with which, on July 9th, he held back Jubal Early, who had about 12,000 infantry, 36 guns, over a 1,000 cavalry. Wallace managed it because he made extremely good use of the ground and the forces he had. Held him up for a day. More importantly, on the night of July 8th, he cabled Henry Halleck, now Army Chief of Staff, in Washington, Grant's point man in Washington, he cabled Halleck, there is a Confederate army on the road to Washington with infantry, artillery, and artillery in proportion, and I will put myself in a position to defend. Halleck had not believed that there could be an army. He thought it was a cavalry raid. Halleck realized what it meant. He cabled Grant. He said, I can't hold Washington without additional troops. Grant put uh, the rest of the 6th Corps on uh, steamships, and they just barely made it. When Jubal Early arrived, if you will, at the gates of Washington at Fort Stevens on July 11th, around noon, there were no veterans in Washington. Grant's Grant's Corps, the 6th Corps, was still on the Potomac. But Early's men were tired out, and straggling badly, and Early couldn't manage a coordinated attack. And by the time he could, the uh, Sixth Corps veterans were in the um, ramparts of Fort Stevens and in the entrenchments on either side, and, and Early did not seize the Capitol. But Early's intention was to seize Washington, and it was Lee's intention that Early seized Washington because of the political ramifications in a presidential election year, what it would mean. So it really wouldn't have, have uh, been like a permanent capture, no. but it wouldn't, it wouldn't have needed oh, no. to be. It, it, 
it puts me in mind of the, the Tet Offensive in 1968 that yeah. it, simply by showing force in the enemy's capital of an enemy who seems otherwise defeated, uh, you, you create the impression that the war is going very differently than it might actually be going on the ground. Exactly. And, and Early could have done that. Yeah. Uh, it would have made a huge impression on uh, voters and on uh, uh, foreign observers. So, yeah. so had had Lou Wallace not held Early up for that day, uh, you, you still conceivably could have had a different outcome to the war altogether. Yes, you, you very certainly. Uh, the um, Union cause at that point in the summer of 1864 does not look good. Um, in spite of the fact that Grant is down around Richmond, well, by that time he'd actually moved across the river to invest Petersburg, but that didn't work. And you have to remember that, that there were these enormous casualties in the Overland campaign, enormous casualties, and Northerners were just sick and tired of death. And so it could have, you know, the, the um, as you say, like, the seizure of the capital. All Early wanted to do was go in, burn a few buildings, get all the money he could, run Abraham Lincoln and the cabinet out, and then head back across the river into Virginia. And then keep the war, which he did, keep the war, keep the front up in the Shenandoah Valley, up along the Potomac River, where he could keep the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad cut, which he did. Um, it's a very interesting campaign and un, and not well understood at all, I think. What is the Monocacy battlefield like today? It's it's beautiful. We have a fairly complete battlefield, about 1,600 acres, um, three, four beautiful old farms, old farm buildings, mills, uh, very well done. We have some very nice walking trails. Um, we're missing only one sector, the sector up north where Wallace's forces uh, uh, prevented or protected the bridge across the river of the Baltimore Turnpike. But it is a beautiful battlefield. We have a wonderful new visitor center built in 2007, and I would invite everybody to come see it. It's a great place. And and it's not far from D.C. I mean, it's very convenient. No, no, it's very. It's about 30 miles. Uh, northwest, um, just off Interstate 270. Well, I, I'm, uh, well the next time I'm driving up to Gettysburg, which seems like it's every other weekend, I will have to make a point Please do. Uh, to, to drop in and see that. As for Lou Wallace, having heroically done this, he has other adventures. We're, we're running out of time, uh, so I'll just tease our listeners by pointing out that he uh, gets involved with the trial of Lincoln's conspirators, with uh, the trial of the commandant of Andersonville. He gets involved with Maximilian in Mexico. Uh, it's just incredible how much stuff this guy did. Uh, but after the war, he then becomes most famous for his, his career as a novelist for, for writing Ben-Hur. So listeners are going to have to get this book and, and find out all about this this fascinating character. But let me ask you your sort of one-minute evaluation of, of Lou Wallace. An extraordinary man, um, intelligent man, a great romantic um, who unfortunately, like some intelligent men, got arrogant and overconfident 
um, early in life, learned, learned from his mistakes and ended up the war, I think, on a high note. Well, we're going to end our interview on, on that high note because uh, we are, again, unfortunately out of time. But I really enjoyed reading this and really learned a lot uh, about, as you say, a fascinating character. And it is a a book, surprisingly when it came in the mail, I keep saying it's a big book. It's not thick, but uh, it's not uh, monograph size, but coffee table book size, but it's got the the apparatus, the footnotes, the uh, uh, the research that you'd expect uh, an intelligence analyst to have compiled before writing anything. And uh, it, it's just been a fascinating book to read, and uh, as this hour has been fascinating to uh, talk with you. So thank you for being on Civil well, War Talk Radio. thank you. This has been fun. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com